Well, good morning. Welcome to FBN this morning. We're glad that you are here. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one to see back in front of you. Get to page 895. You're going to be right where we're at. Communion element in the back there. Um, we are going to, we're going to seamlessly transition right from the sermon into communion. So if you didn't notice those in the way and didn't grab them, it's totally okay. But, but hear me, this is by far the least awkward time to go get it right now left that you have left. So uh, look at, see, you're not alone, right? Yeah, go, go get them and then you're going to be ready uh, to take communion with us at the end of this message. And we're glad that you're here. Um, I want to make mention of something that we've got coming up uh, two Sundays from today. And so on the Sunday, uh, September 17th, starting at five o'clock, we're having what we're calling the Church Appreciation Night, which is your staff just putting on an event to, to appreciate you. Um, we're going to feed you that night. Uh, we're going to have entertainment for the kids. There's going to be a dunk tank uh, that you can get me wet if you want. Uh, there's going to be all kinds of yard games and, and fellowship and, and all kinds of stuff. So we want you uh, to be there. We want you to be a part of it. The only thing that we ask for right now for this week is that the office will be sending out an RSVP to you if you could let us know that you're coming so we can make sure we have enough food for you, right? And so uh, that would be important. So when you get that and you email this week, uh, let us know if we don't have your email. Uh, there's some flyers on the, on the round tables when you come in. You can pick it up. There's a QR code you can scan and let us know you're coming to that as well. Everybody's invited. We want you there. We hope you can make it. But if you're coming, just let us know. Um, so that way you won't go hungry at the event. But before we get to that, we got to get through today and uh, just make one mention for you since you're at this service. There's going to be a baptism at the end of next uh, service uh, where we get to baptize PJ Piper Day and so we always are excited about that and celebrate that and want to just make mention of that so you guys could be aware of it. But I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer and then we'll get started on this message. Father, we are so incredibly thankful for each and every person who's here. Um, Lord, we know it's not by accident that, that they're here, that you have worked uh, through your grace and sovereignty to bring them to this moment. Um, and, and we just pray now, Lord, that you'll just bring it home, uh, that you've met us in the praise of your name. Uh, you're going to meet us at the table here in a little bit. And so now we just pray that you would speak mightily through your word, uh, that it would not return to you void, but it would accomplish everything that you've set forth for it to accomplish today. And that you get the glory from all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I grew up in Putnam County. I grew up in a little town called Cloverdale, which means that uh, when I first started driving, I started driving uh, the roads in Putnam County. And there's a stretch of road. It's on Highway 231 that runs from, uh, it runs uh, between uh, Highway 40 and Interstate 70 um, from like South Putnam High School to Cloverdale. And it's not a very long stretch, like four or five miles, right? But it's, it's wide open. It's very hilly and it's very windy. And, and from the day I started driving, that was like my favorite stretch of road to drive. Like, it's just so fun to go up and down those hills and around those curves. And I just, every time I got that stretch, I just got excited. And a couple years ago, they, they had a major project where they resurfaced the entire thing. And it's just not fun anymore. Right? They ruined it, right? And the way they ruined it is they brought in a guy. I'm assuming it's a guy, a rumble strip guy, who took his job way too seriously. Okay? And so you, you know these rumble strips that are supposed to be on like the shoulder, like to warn you? He decided he's going to set his rumble strips inside the white line. So you're hitting rumble strips and you're still in your lane. But that wasn't enough for this guy. He also put them in the middle lines and it creatures into the lane. So you now have not much lane to work with. And so when I'm driving my truck down that stretch, I have what feels like about a quarter of an inch on either side while you're going around the turns or you're hitting rumble strips. And you know what happens when you hit rumble strips, don't you? Everyone in the car is silently judging you for how bad a driver you are. 
Uh, this, guy, this guy, like he can't even keep it on the road. Not to mention it shakes the whole thing. It's a horribly unpleasant experience. And they've taken the most fun stretch of road in Putnam County and just completely ruined it. Now, despite all that, I remain a fan of rumble strips. I like the concept. I like the idea, right? The idea is this, that they serve as a warning, right? They, they notify you that a change is needed. That if you continue on your current path, Right? Without correcting your course, trouble is coming for you. And I, I love the concept that you get a warning before you're actually in the ditch or in the other lane, before you're actually in trouble. Because we need rumble strips in our lives, don't we? We need the Word of God. We need His Spirit. We need His people. We need their life stories. We need even history, right, to, to learn to, that to more and more to warn us of troubling, troubling trends in our lives before they become full-blown disasters. And if we're wise, we will listen to the rumble strips in our lives and we'll correct our course instead of driving right through them into trouble. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to give his disciples and Mark is going to give his readers a, a rumble strip. It's a warning, it's a warning about a major threat to our lives and our faith and our hearts. And, he, and he's, not, he's not talking about some gross rampant sin, right? He's not talking about uh, some kind of biblical ignorance. He's not talking about uh, political disagreement or social issues. He's not warning them about any of those things. He's warning them about a condition of the human heart that starts small, but then it spreads like wildfire. Or the image that Jesus will use is it spreads like, like yeast, that, that it comes in contact with a very small amount of the dough, and then quickly and invisibly it affects all of it until it has consumed us and devastated everything. And here's the really bad news this morning, that every single one of us are capable of this, that all of our sinful hearts are bent towards this very thing that Jesus is warning us about. But here's the good news. We don't have to give in to it. That with Christ's help, we can take heed his warning and avoid this. And we, and we can ask him to identify this in our lives and, and root it out of us. And we're going to give you that opportunity today to do that before you leave. And it's my prayer that every one of us will take advantage of it. But in order to frame that time, I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up. He's going to be reading our passage for us this morning, which will be Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning? Good morning. Good morning. Okay. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sign deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them the strict orders, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves what they did not have that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the five, for the 5,000, how many basket full, baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? You guys can have a seat. 
All right, so let's, let's recap this. Chris started reading for us in verse 11, uh, which is with that one in verse 12, Adam covered for us last week. But really the, the setup for this goes all the way back to into the middle of chapter 7, right? Where since uh, starting the middle of chapter 7, Jesus spends a lot of time in a Gentile region, right? He's around the Decapolis. He's spending a ton of time around, around Gentile people. And what Mark tells us is that while he's there, he's performing all kinds of miracles, all these, all these miraculous things are happening, and Jesus is doing it for the Gentiles. But in verse 10 here of chapter 8, Mark tells us that he arrives in, in Dalmanutha, which is a region that was uh, more heavily populated by Jewish people, and that's where he's confronted in verse 11 by the Pharisees. Now, we've seen these guys, right? These Pharisees are the religious leaders of Israel. They would know the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone they should be uh, the, the leading group looking for the Messiah, but instead they're power hungry because they really enjoy the status they currently have as the religious ruling elite of their people. And so every single time they have come to Jesus in the book of Mark, they're not coming to encourage him. They're not coming to support him. They're not coming to help him. They're coming to confront him. And they do it again here in chapter 8. And the last time that Jesus saw these guys, which is the start of chapter 7, you remember what he did? He called them hypocrites to their faces and in front of everybody. And he said that they take all their little man-made traditions and they violate the word of God and so people shouldn't be listening to them. So there's not a lot of kumbaya and harmony between these two. There's not a lot of good feelings going either way. And so here in chapter 8, the Pharisees approach again and, and they're wanting to argue. And in the argument, they demand to see a sign. And what that means is that they demand that he showcase his power to prove that he has authority from God. And this is why it's really good, I believe, to go through books verse by verse. Because context matters. Mark wants you to feel the full irony of this demand. Because you're supposed to read it and know what came before it. You're supposed to read it and know that while Jesus was with the Gentiles, who all the Pharisees would have avoided and spent no time with, that he healed many, that the deaf could hear and the mute could speak and the blind could see, and the Gentiles themselves ended up praising the God of Israel, and then he feeds 4,000 of them with just a handful of loaves of bread. And now he returns to his people the people that the Messiah was sent to, and their first move is to say, prove yourself. Like, who are you? Show us that you can do anything powerful, anything miraculous, which is ironic enough, isn't it? But it gets even more ironic when Jesus refuses to do for his people what he did for the Gentiles. In fact, we read a lot of Jesus' reactions in the Gospels. This is one of my favorites, which maybe says something about me and my heart. Because at this demand, he just, he just sighs heavily and is like, no, and he just leaves immediately. Like he's just out, right? He can't, he can't take it anymore. He can't stomach this anymore. He has no time for this. And so he just leaves immediately, gives them nothing. Which if that doesn't feel like the Jesus that you know or have heard about, stick with me. We're gonna see why he responds that way today. Now, maybe it's due to the really abrupt exit that none of them are planning on. But when they all get back in the boat, Jesus' disciples, the disciples realize that nobody grabbed bread. Nobody grabbed enough for them to eat that day. And in fact, among them all, they only have one loaf. And this is when Jesus addresses them. And, and, and what Mark says is that he gives them a strict, right, a strict order, which means he's, his intensity level is still ratcheted up. He's still running out of 10. He has not calmed down from this exchange. He's still pretty fiery, and he's still feeling some really righteous indignation from what has just occurred. And he looks at the guys and he says, but you need to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. In fact, let's just read what he says. 
Verse 15, he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what in the world does that mean? Don't feel bad if you don't know. The disciples didn't either. Okay, look at their guess in verse 16. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Spoiler alert, that's not it. All right, that's the wrong answer. That's not what Jesus is upset about. That's not what he's talking about. It's not what he's warning about. And so what is he? Well, there's a couple things I think will help us unpack this. Number one is this, is that leaven was a common Jewish metaphor for an invisible persuasive influence. Leaven is more commonly known in our day. The term we would use in baking is yeast, right? And it's not just a Jewish metaphor. It's used throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, right? And in the Bible, every time yeast or leaven is used, it's used as a symbol or an allegory for evil. It's never used in the positive. Now, I won't read all these for time's sake because we have to, we get the chance to take communion today, but in the Old Testament, in Exodus 12, in each Passover, the Jewish people were commanded to remove all leaven from all their dwellings, in in all their tents, Right? In, in, in Exodus 23 and 34, Leviticus 2 and 6, leaven was, was banned. It was not allowed from any offering that you'd give to the synagogue or temple. In the New Testament, in Galatians 5, leaven is used as an image for how false teaching infects the church. It starts small and then it spreads through the whole thing. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's used as a metaphor for how unjudged sin permeates the local church. And in Luke 12, Jesus says the hypocrisy of the Pharisees will spread among his people like leaven. And so it's always an imagery for this invisible, persuasive influence that spreads wildly and it's never for the good in the Bible. And the second thing that Jesus is saying here is that there was a shared leaven. There's a leaven that both the Pharisees and Herod had in common. Now, outside of being hungry for power, there was not a lot that Herod and the Pharisees shared in common. But what Jesus is stating here is that they both had an outlook. They both had an attitude. They both had a condition of their heart that, that was shared among them. And this shared leaven could be wildly contagious and wildly dangerous. And even the disciples themselves would be at risk if they didn't stay on guard. Because for Jesus Christ, unbelief is a grave threat. And we're going to define for you what unbelief means this morning. But this, this unbelief was the shared leaven between Herod and the Pharisees. This is what they had in common. That their heart posture was one of rigid unbelief. And I, and I want us to understand what that means, okay? What do we know about Herod so far in the book of Mark? Well, we know that he was the one who had John the Baptist arrested at the demand of his wife, right? Herodias. We know that despite that, Herod personally liked John, Okay? And in fact, we're told this in Mark chapter 6. So Herodias, that's Herod's wife, held a grudge against him, that's John, and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him. And listen to this language. Knowing, not, not almost convinced, not wondering about, the, the, the phrase is knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. There's no ignorance here. And when Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. And so that's an important detail. Herod listened to John regularly. And so he heard truth in his life repeatedly. He knew what was right. He knew that John was righteous. He knew that John was holy. He knew that what John was teaching was the truth. But when the time came to do what was right, Herod didn't do it, did he? It was he who actually ordered the murder of John the Baptist, 
At the request of his stepdaughter, who had performed a provocative dance, working through with his with his wife working through her at this at this at the altar of not being ashamed in front of his guests, he knew what was right, and yet he still hardened his heart to the state of unbelief. Pharisees, they knew the scriptures more than anyone else. They knew what the Messiah would do. They knew what Jesus was doing was unexplainable unless he actually came from God. And we have record of them admitting as much. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And here's what it says. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we what? We know. There's no confusion here. We know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with them. There's no ignorance. There's no wavering. There's no doubt. They know. And yet what? They refused him at every turn. They resisted him. They confronted him. They accused him. And this request for a sign here in chapter 8, verse 12, is not a request at all. It's a demand. Right? And, and, and to let you know that, Mark actually plays around with the language in his gospel so that you can know. Right? In, 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 in the book of Mark, whenever someone asks Jesus to do something out of faith, Mark records it as a miracle. But whenever someone demands a miracle, Mark always uses the language that they, that they demanded or asked for a sign. And so he's tipping you off to the heart state of the request. Right? And the Pharisees demanding a sign, what they're demanding is unmistakable proof that Jesus and his mission were authorized by God. It's, it's very similar to what happened with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember when, when fire came down from heaven and consumed uh, the altar that was completely soaked uh, to prove to the prophets of Baal that there is one God in heaven and he's the God of Israel? And so this, this unmistakable sign, right? This is what the Pharisees are asking for and Jesus immediately rejects their demand. And he ignores it for two reasons. Number one, signs given under demand never result in faith. After Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel repent and change their lives and give to, to dedicate the rest of their days to serving the Lord, don't they? No, they don't. They immediately just want to kill Elijah. Because signs given under demand don't ever result in faith. And number two, Jesus knows that Pharisees' minds are already made up. They've already seen enough, they've already heard enough, they already know enough, and they've rejected everything they've received to this point. And did you know there are actually very few times recorded for us in the Gospels where Jesus actually rejects someone's request for a miracle? It only happens in two different scenarios. The first is this, whenever the Pharisees demand a sign in order to prove Jesus' authority, and one other time, you know what it is? It's in Luke 23 when Pilate, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, sends Jesus to go see Herod and see if Herod can figure out what to do for him. And Herod's all excited because he's heard all the stories and he demands that Jesus perform signs for him. And guess what? Jesus gives him nothing and won't even talk to him. Because all the way back here in Mark 8, he knew already, he's standing ready, that Herod and the Pharisees have this one thing in common. It's unbelief. It's not ignorance. It's not a lack of knowledge. They had all seen and heard and experienced and been exposed to the truth. And in the light of the truth, they willfully chose darkness. In the face of the truth, instead of submitting to it, they hardened their hearts to it. And they willfully chose not to surrender. And now Jesus is calling this leaven. Meaning, this is spreading among my people. It's spreading among the Jews. And he's not wrong. And what John 1 tells us, he came to his own. But what did his own do? His own did not receive him. 
Have you noticed thus far in the book of Mark, the only people we see expressing genuine faith in Jesus outside disciples are who? It's always Gentiles. And now Jesus is sternly warning them because he knows the disciples themselves are at high risk of this. Because the funny thing about unbelief is it's impossible without being exposed to truth first. You can be in a state of not believing because of ignorance. That's possible. But unbelief, right, is a willful rejection of truth that you've heard and known and received. And we actually see really troubling signs of this in recent passages in Mark, especially relating to bread. Bread is used throughout the scriptures as a metaphor uh, for, um, for God's provision. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And, and in the scriptures, bread uh, me, uh, both literally and metaphorically represents the provision of God to his people. And have you noticed how big of a theme it's been in, in Mark lately? Starting in chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus all the women and children there with, with five loaves of bread and two fish. The very next scene we see is he has a confrontation with, this, with the Pharisees over the fact that Jesus doesn't make his disciples ceremonially wash their hands before eating their bread. And it starts a whole big debate about what actually defiles people. Then there's a Gentile mother who asks Jesus to heal her daughter and he says, not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she's like, no, just give me the crumbs that fall from the table. Then he goes to the capitalist and he feeds 4,000 Gentiles, which is seven loaves of bread. It's been a major theme, but disciples keep missing it because now they're in a boat and they're stressing out over the fact that they forgot bread. And when Jesus comes to them and warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of of Herod, their reaction is, oh no, he got us. He figured it out that we forgot the bread and he's mad. And Jesus gets really exasperated with them. And he asks them a series of questions that are, that are cutting and are convicting. And they basically all mean this. Have you not seen enough? Why in the world would you be worried about bread? I'm here. But you see, maybe that's it. Maybe they've seen too much. And they're starting to get used to it. And they're starting to get rigid. And they're starting to lose their awe. And they're starting to get hardened to truth into Jesus and his provision. And it's been happening for a while. Back in Mark 6, when Jesus gets in the boat after walking in the water, uh, this is what Mark tells us about disciples, that they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. That's enough, right? You can give them some misunderstanding. But what's he say next? Instead, their hearts were hardened. Isn't that really interesting language? Not that they were confused, not that they were bewildered, not that they were curious. All that could be okay. The exact phrasing Mark uses is that their hearts were hardened. What we find here in Mark 8, and we'll see in Mark 9 and Mark 10 as well, is this is a really big, important season for the disciples. Because the question they're going to have to face is this. Are they going to get numb to the Lord? Are they going to get numb to his power? Are they going to get numb to his provision? And will they begin to harden their hearts to what they're seeing? It's not unlike the development phase for those who've grown up in the church, right? Who grew up going to church weekly with their families, who know all the Bible stories, and and they heard that Jesus died for them from the moment they could understand words, right? And what happens is over time, you hear something enough, it starts to get a little less impactful and a little less profound. And so they go off and they leave the home and they go to school or they go to college and they start seeing things on the internet, things that they know aren't true, but it still has a draw to their sinful nature, 
And the question that all of them have to answer is this. Will they embrace their faith? Will they make it their own? Will they actually embrace Jesus? Will they make him their Lord and not just their parents' Lord? Or will they harden their hearts? I don't know what's happening here. Maybe... Maybe the disciples are really frustrated that they've been spending so much time with the Gentiles lately. That's not what they signed up for. They signed up to, to ride the Messiah all the way to the top of the kingdom of Israel. Maybe they don't understand the mission. But what I do know is in just a few verses, Jesus is going to directly confront them with this question. He's going to look at them and say, who do you say I am? And we all in our lives, need to come to the same confrontation. We need to ask the question, who do I say that Jesus is? And this is not a question of identity. Right? Who Jesus is has, has been predetermined. Right? We don't get to change his true identity. The question of who do I say Jesus is, is a question about my heart. Who do I say Jesus is? And this is why unbelief is most rampant in the church. Because there needs to be an exposure to truth before you can harden your hearts to it. It's the young couple who knows exactly what the Bible says about purity before marriage and willfully ignores it. As if that just doesn't apply to them anymore. It's the man who knows exactly what the Bible teaches about giving but still clings to his money as if it's his own. It's the person who knows that their language and conduct is supposed to glorify God but does absolutely nothing to change the words that they use and come out of their mouths. It's not a problem of biblical knowledge. It's a problem of the heart. It's those who know the purpose of the church is to reach out and reach the lost and reach the next generation and still demand the local church to make it all about them and keep their preferences. It's not a problem about knowing what the mission of the church is. It's a problem of the heart. It's unbelief. And I could go on and on and on with so many examples, but it's every area of our lives where we know what the Bible says but still refuse its influence thinking that somehow God and his authority and his voice, they don't get to speak to that part of my life. Could Jesus not ask us the same questions he asked the disciples here? Don't you understand? Have you not seen enough? Is your heart hardened? Don't you get it? What more could I do to prove to you my worthiness? What more could I do to prove to you my goodness and that my intentions for you are pure and that my love for you is real and that my faithfulness and authority are in existence? What more could I do to deserve your obedience? And the answer is nothing. And yet, we have this way of hardening our hearts to his truth. And we're going to go to the communion table today. Right? And so in the prep for the time in which we, too, get to take bread that's been given to us by Jesus, right? I want us, I want us to, to do what 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to do to prepare for that time, which is simply this, to examine ourselves. And so we're going to invite the Lord's inspection this morning. Right? As a time of response, I'm going to lead you through three different prayer focuses to help prepare our hearts for communion today and to respond to this truth. And the first thing that I want you to pray about this morning is this. I want you just simply to ask the Lord to identify the leaven in your life. It might be really small right now. It might not have a great hold on you. But if it's not identified, it's not called out, and it's not repented of, it's not rooted out, I promise you it won't stay small. And so let the Lord speak to you this morning and be a, humble, be a rumble strip. Ask him to identify the trembling trends in your heart and in your life and in your attitude before they become disasters.
The question is this, what are the unseen persuasive influences in your life that are leading you away from truth? What are the unseen persuasive influences that are leading you away from Jesus and away from righteousness and hindering your ability to abide in your Savior? Take some time, take a moment now and just pray and ask God to identify those things for you. Second thing I'm going to ask you to do is simply just pray against unbelief. Because this is where unchecked leaven always leads. Right? The problem is once it's to the level of unbelief, then to quote Jesus, this type comes out only by prayer and fasting. I can't talk you out of it. This is a deeper, more rooted problem. This is one with demonic influence. And so to defeat it, you need someone bigger, someone better, someone stronger and more influential than yourself or that influence. And that's not you. It's only Jesus. And so plead with him this morning to protect your heart from unbelief. Plead with him to protect your loved ones from unbelief. Plead with him to, to root out whatever is there. If, 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 if whatever leaven he's identified, confess it to him and repent of it now. And if you're honest enough this morning just to admit that you're in unbelief already, confess that to him. Confess your rigidity and your disobedience and your apathy in your hard heart and ask him to change it. Take this time. The last thing that we want you to focus on this morning before we head to the communion table is the point of communion. Simply just to remember. 
And in remembering, let that lead to faith. Psalm 103 is a prayer in which David tells his soul not to forget the benefits of the Lord. So take some time this morning to remind yourself of exactly who he is. Remind yourself of what he's done on your behalf. And whenever you pray, you make sure you pray to that God. You pray in light of those truths. When you go face the day, you go with that God. We get so worried about things. We get so fearful about our future, so scared about our kids, so worked up about what's beyond the bin. It's because we forget that God doesn't need our bread. He's got it. What more could he ever do to prove to us that? And that's the point of communion to remember. That he's for us, that he died for us, that he cares for us, that he's capable of solving our greatest need, that his intentions for us are good, that he's trustworthy. And so take some time today to just remind yourself who it is that we're praying to, who it is we're going to join at the table, and let that feed your faith. Father, we come to you today, a church full of disobedient people who are in all of your grace. And yet, Lord, I know how prone I am, how prone we all are to, to shifting into hard-heartedness, to shifting into apathy, to shifting into unbelief. That in the light of your grace, in the light of your truth, we willfully choose things that we know aren't true. And so, God, I pray that first you would hear the prayers around this room asking you to identify whatever leaven may be in their life, whatever influences may be leading them away from you. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's a cable news network. Maybe it's a podcast or YouTube channel. Maybe it's, it's a system of thought they keep giving themselves to. Maybe it's just lies they keep telling themselves. But would you identify that leaven and would you... Would you give us the wisdom to hear the rumble strip this morning, to repent of it, and to root those things out of our lives? Thank God for myself, for anyone in this room, Lord, we pray against unbelief. We pray that your spirit would help protect us from a posture that is so cold and so rigid and so hard to your truth that we aren't even moved by grace anymore. We aren't moved by your authority. We're just going to choose our own way. It is a dangerous posture. So help us as your people to avoid it at all costs and protect us from it. And then, Lord, as we approach your table this morning, may we remember the God who left heaven and took on our form, the God who felt every weakness and pain and temptation, the God who became the most like us on the cross when he absorbed our sin onto his own body and took your wrath for it. 
So Lord, may we remember that you're good. May we remember that you're for us. Remember that you're gracious and loving and forgiving. And may that shape our response at the communion table today. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, if you can grab your elbow.